Open your Bibles again this morning to the fifth chapter of James. James chapter 5, and let us read those words that we shall forever remember. Few words, short sentence, easy to memorize. Let's never forget it. James chapter 5, the last sentence of verse 16. You know, most verses in the Bible are of one sentence. This verse has two. We want the second one. James 5.16, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What a power-packed statement on prayer. Easy to remember, easy to memorize, easy to understand, difficult to practice. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Let's ask God to bless us as we study prayer for a few minutes this morning. O Lord, we beseech Thee through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught His disciples how to pray. And O Lord, by Thy Spirit You have inspired for us the Scriptures that tell us that an effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man will avail much. But, O Lord, we must study Thy Word here a little and there a little that we might see what it is to pray effectually, to pray fervently, and to be righteous men and women. Grant, O Lord, that as a result of this study, we shall avail much, that we shall have power with Thee as princes and princesses in Zion. O Lord, as Jacob did many nights ago, when he wrestled with thee until the dawning of the day and prevailed against thee to grant him a blessing. Grant that we shall do the same and thus have a tremendous preserving and restoring effect on our children, our families, our church, our nation, evangelism, and in our individual and personal struggles against Satan and his wiles. Bless us now, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Last Sunday, we began studying prayer. Now, if your spirit is quenched this morning, and by your spirit, I mean the spirit that is given to you, if the spirit's quenched and your heart is not right with God, prayer is a boring subject. But if your heart is right with the Lord and you want to avail much, if you just get visions of grandeur, of a great prayer life, and I hope you do, I hope you do. That's what we spent all of last Sunday trying to accomplish. To give you a vision for prayer. If you don't see what prayer can do, you're not going to pray. No matter how well I tell you how to do it in the next few Sundays. And believe me, we are not going to finish today. This thing has mushroomed into a study you wouldn't believe. You would believe. You've been there before with me. But hang in there with me. We, are, we have a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to cover it quickly to this morning, although I do want to remember a few things. Prayer, as we will see, and as I mentioned briefly last Sunday, can change your children, can change your family, can change your nation, which is my nation, so please pray for it, can change our church, can change evangelism can give you the strength to stand against the wiles of the devil himself through the power of prayer. It can build your health. 
Remember last Sunday evening the example I ended with when Hezekiah was sick to death and God sent Isaiah the prophet to say, set your house in order, you're going to die. Some of you weren't here last Sunday evening. Hezekiah immediately rolled over to the wall, showed his back to Isaiah, wept bitterly, and begged God for mercy health-wise. Isaiah had left the inner court, was just getting to the middle court, when God's word came to him and said, wait, turn around, go back into Hezekiah, tell him I've given him 15 years. Hezekiah received 15 more years. It can help your health. It can help your wisdom. We just saw that in James, the first chapter. It can help your prosperity. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And it can help your safety and a hundred other things that you need. Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above. And the way you get it is to ask for it. You have not because you ask not. And you have not when you ask because you ask amiss. That is why we study effectual prayer. We live in a generation where lay me, now I lay me down to sleep. Oh Lord, keep my soul. I can't remember it and I thank God I can't. But we have these little memorized prayers that mean nothing. We need to wrestle with God like Jacob did with the Lord that night in Genesis chapter 32. And I love that example. Read it every day if you need that to remind you of prevailing with God. Remember that prayer of the Levites in 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 27? It said their voice was heard and their prayer came up into His holy dwelling place. If those words themselves do not stimulate you spiritually, you're sick, maybe dead. That's why Paul said, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. Wake up. Listen to those words. Our prayers ascending up into the holy dwelling place of the Almighty God. And what do they look like there? Sweet incense. And He takes a deep breath of those and it rejoices His heart. Yes, the God we worship. And He grants us our petitions. Their prayer came up into His holy dwelling place. Effectual prayer has to be taught. However, because remember, you can ask amiss. And when the disciples heard Jesus Christ pray, they realized they had been praying amiss, or they hadn't been praying at that level, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. Let me show you a couple more examples this morning of prayer to stimulate your interest again. I know you're you're dead with that carcass of flesh hanging on you, and you need a few more examples to remind you of prayer. Look at the book of Genesis. I want to grab another woman from the Word of God who prayed and her prayer was heard. Genesis, the 16th chapter. Boy, there were some powerful women who prayed in the Word of God. Anna prayed day and night. Hannah prayed for a son, got four. <laughs> That's not bad. Hagar. Hagar. What nationality? Egyptian. Not even an Israelite. Loved by her mistress? 
Sarah hated and despised. Remember, Sarah had the brilliant idea, and oh, what a brilliant idea it was. Let's help God get his job done. We have a lot of evangelists who believe that today. Abraham had been promised a son. Sarah said, well, you haven't got it yet with me, Abraham. Why don't you go in and try Hagar? Abraham, being the typical natural male fool that he was, went in and tried it. She conceived immediately. When she conceived, she despised her mistress, saying, look, God's given me the son he didn't give you. And so Sarah couldn't take that in her household, so she threw Sarah, uh, she, so she threw Hagar out. And this is where we take up in verse 7 of Genesis 16. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now let me keep reading. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou, God, seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? You wouldn't believe the difficulty that commentators have with verse 13. I have no trouble with that at all if you'll just look at the word also and where it is located in the sentence. When she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Also here. That means there had been somewhere else she had sought the Lord. Where was that? That was with Abraham. She wouldn't have known about the Lord most likely if it hadn't been for Abraham teaching her about the Lord. Abraham was the friend of God. Abraham was the man that God dealt with. She had learned to pray at Abraham's place, at Abraham's altar. But now she's out here in the wilderness by a fountain of water. And she says, Thou God seest me. Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Even there not believing that it might, not necessarily believing that it would happen, she prayed and God heard her affliction and came and answered her with an angel, even away from Abraham, Hagar, in the wilderness, an Egyptian, away from the house of God, prayed and was heard. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings 2. For those of you who like the prayer of Solomon... In 1 Kings 3, you'll like the prayer of 2 Kings 2. Remember, Solomon prayed for wisdom, and oh, did he get a load. And God giveth liberally to all men. In 2 Kings 2, we have a prayer of Elisha. Now, Elisha believed James 1.5, didn't he? He believed that God could give liberally. Remember Elijah? Elijah was a great man, wouldn't you say? Did Elijah raise the dead? 
Yes. Did Elijah call fire down from heaven? Yes. Did Elijah stop the rain for three and a half years? Yes, he did. Elijah's dying, and he's transferring his responsibilities as chief prophet to Elisha. And they've crossed the Jordan River, and they're standing together in verse 9 of 2 Kings 2. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Now let's stop for a minute. For those of you, I hear some man saying, and this is a little, let me run a 60-second rabbit. Some of you may wonder why I'm constantly saying, I can hear someone saying, and then defending what I'm, what I'm teaching. Do you know how often the Apostle Paul said that? Read Romans 9. Thou wilt say then unto me, some man will say, so that's a very scriptural practice. I've been a little worried about that, that I do that frequently. But what I'm trying to do is take away your objections to satisfy how you may be looking at the passage. You may look at this and say, well, this isn't a prayer to God. This is a prayer to Elijah. Wait a minute. What could Elijah do for Elisha? Give him a quarter out of his pocket? This is a prayer to God through God's man. Watch it. Because Elijah didn't even know if the request was going to be granted or not which shows you that it was out of his control. But watch the request for those of you who want to wrestle with God for big things. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now that is a bold prayer, isn't it? But aren't we told to come boldly to the throne of grace? Elijah had been a great man. What a portion of the Spirit he had. And yet Elisha says, I want a double portion. That's believing that God gives liberally. Verse 10, and he said, this is Elijah speaking, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. See, this shows it was a prayer to God. Because Elijah didn't know if it was going to be answered or not. Verse 11. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared, appeared, get that word, appeared, a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. If you see it, if you see me leave, you'll get this hard thing. And Elisha saw it. If that doesn't comfort your hearts, nothing will. That's right. Listen to that. I want a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Ever thought of wrestling with God for a double portion of Solomon's wisdom? Oh, I wish I could build your faith. It ought to be built right now. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing with the Word of God. Look at these examples we have in Scripture. Ah, uh, we won't turn to Second Chronicles 20. I wanted to look at it. We've got to hurry. Jehoshaphat was a man of prayer. He prayed one time for victory against this great host that came against him, and God said, I hear your prayer. And oh, it was a good prayer. We're going to deal with Jehoshaphat. He says, go to battle, but I'm not going to let you fight. You're going to have to stand there and watch me. <laughs> And the Lord whooped up on him, and then the Jehoshaphat got to go in and take all the spoil. And it, it took him days to clean up that mess. There was so much gold and stuff there. 
but he didn't have to fight. All they did was stand and watch, singing praises while the battle took place. And God did the fighting. That is the God we worship. Amen. Stand still and see the salvation of God. One more, and it was in James 5. Let's go back to James 5. Although we read it last Sunday, I didn't even comment on it. James 5, this is back to Elijah. Now, we just prayed about Elisha, but don't think that Elijah's spirit was all that low just because Elisha got a double load. Elijah was quite a man. Now, in verse 16, we have our sentence, our favorite sentence, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And here's the example that James uses to provoke faith in prayer. Elias was a man that was above the temptations of the world, and he prayed earnestly. I'm sorry. Does your Bible say that? Verse 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. If Elisha would have had a TV, he'd have had problems with it too. If Elisha would have worked in an office where there was a scantily clad, frivolous, forward secretary, he'd have had problems too. If Elisha had been a member of this congregation, he would have been upset at some, of the at some of the other members as easily as you are. He was subject to like passions as we are. Does that give you any comfort? And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And you are capable of being equal to Elijah in the power of prayer, or that example would not be given in James 5. He was subject to the like same passions that you are, which means you are subject to the like passions that he was. You can be Elijah. Well, let's go for Elisha. Let's go for Elisha. If you stumble in your faith, you're bordering on doubting. You're bordering on doubting. If you can't set your goals high and keep them when you're on your knees, remember James chapter 1 said, don't doubt. Don't even doubt it. You know, you may say, well, I'd be content with Elijah. Well, maybe you would be. I wouldn't be. I want to pray for that double portion. But can we be like these men? We're, we're capable of it. Will we avail ourselves of this source of power that God's given to us in prayer? Look at Ephesians chapter 3. I referred to this verse at least two or three times last Sunday, but we did not look at it. I like you seeing the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. When we read that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, how much? You can't tell me. You know why? Your mind isn't big enough. Can I prove that? Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able... That's ability. That's power. Now unto him that is able to do slightly abundantly above, exceeding abundantly above most of all that we can ask or think. Do you notice how he cuts you off at every corner? Exceeding abundantly. You know, he didn't even need to put the word exceeding there. Abundantly describes something a whole lot more. But he says exceeding abundantly above all 
not just some or most, but all that we can ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. What, what is in you right now this morning? The Holy Spirit of God. And that Spirit of God coupled together with your prayers, with groanings which cannot be uttered, will bring you to the holy dwelling place of God to accomplish things you cannot ask or think. I've realized them in my life. Remember, I'm the most blessed man on the face of this earth. But experience is irrelevant. The Word of God is what counts. You don't want to hear my stories. But I know that's true. Can we confirm it from another place in Scripture? You know, the Bible says, let, it be established, let every word be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Look at Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. Sometimes you might have to look a while to find that second witness, but it's there. You know, Paul wouldn't have said it if it wasn't there. Jeremiah 33, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it, to establish it. The Lord is His name. Verse 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. God will show you things that you do not know. I, wit I hope and pray that you'll believe that. All I can do is present what I just presented. It is up to you to believe it. God has promised it. I believe it. He's done those things for me, and I'm trusting for him to do a whole lot more in the future of these things. Now this morning, let's look next. We have covered an introduction to prayer last Sunday. We've covered examples of effectual prayer. Isn't it encouraging to see where other men got down their knees and prayed for something, or women, and God heard and intervened in great and mighty ways? And then we looked at the promises of prayer like we just did, Ephesians 3.20. Ability to do exceeding abundantly above our requests or even our thoughts. Now let's look at the subject of prayer. The subject of prayer is the person who prays. What is the character of the man who is going to have his prayers answered? What must we have in our lives to have our prayers heard? Now I'm going to assume regeneration. I'm not even going to cover it. You've got to be a born-again child of God. If you're not a child of God, God doesn't hear your prayers. But I hope this morning I'm only speaking, I am only speaking to regenerate children of God. If you're here this morning and you know you're unregenerate, and you wouldn't, your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, but if you're not regenerate, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to regenerate men, women, and children. So we assume that because we've covered that so many times before. Most of you could probably stand up here and equal me in covering the point. But let's move on. What does our text tell us in James 5.16 about the subject? Remember from third grade English what the subject in a sentence is? It's the uh, person, place, or thing that's acting. Right? It's the person acting. The subject of prayer is the person praying. What does it say in James 5.16? Righteous. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. The first qualification is we must be righteous in our lives. Well, how do you get righteous? Well, Christ has made us righteous on the cross, but that's not the righteousness described in James 5.16. The righteousness described there is the righteousness you have in your practical lives. It's this simple. 1 John 3.7 says, He that doeth righteousness is righteous. That's, is that deep? To be a righteous man, you've got to do righteousness. 
you don't sing righteousness and you don't hear righteousness, you do righteousness. Now, devils say right, devils know that, devils believe righteousness. Let me see, there was three categories. That's right. You don't believe righteousness, you don't say righteousness, and you don't hear it. Let me give you example verses. The devils believe it. The devils believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They believe that there is a God. There's only one God, and they tremble at that knowledge, James 2.19. So they believe it. But does it do much for them? No. There are others that hear it. We read that in James chapter 1, but be ye doers of the word. What? Doers and not hearers. Then there are those that say it. 1 John 2.4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. I don't care if you believe you're righteous. I don't care if you hear about righteousness. I don't care if you say righteous things. The Bible says, he that doeth righteousness is righteous. And when you read about men like women like Hannah, men like Elijah, men like Elisha, I'll tell you one thing, you'll read about activity. You'll read about things they did. You don't read about them floating into church on Sunday, missing Sunday night, coming in five minutes late anyway, and then being righteous. No way. They live it day in, day out, like the Apostle Paul. We could go on David. They were righteous men by their deeds. God does not hear the prayer of the wicked. He only hears the prayer of the righteous. Look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Oh, Psalm 34 is an excellent psalm, and we're... We're going to be back to this psalm before I finish this morning. And I know this morning is quickly leaving us. Psalm 34, verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry. Verse 16, The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Verse 17, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Who gets... Whose prayers are heard? Righteous men. Now James, see, taught the same thing that David taught here in Psalm 34. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. If you get down on your knees and you put into practice everything else we're going to cover in this extensive study of prayer, it will all be to no avail. No avail. If you know what I mean by the use of that word avail, it will not avail much. It'll be to no avail if you are not righteous. First things first. That's why I'm covering the subject of prayer. If you're not righteous, don't even listen to the rest of it. Get straightened out first in yourself. And then we can look at the manner and method and content and attitude of prayer. We must be righteous first. Look at John chapter 9 and verse 31. Why, even a dumb blind man knew that point that we're covering right now, that you have to be righteous. John 9 and verse 31, this is the blind man that Jesus Christ healed his sight, and the Pharisees called him in and gave him a rough time. In John chapter 9, and he said in verse 31, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Now here's a poor little blind boy, and l listen to him teach these Pharisees. Why, why is he saying this? Well, they had just accused the poor little guy of being a sinner because they were so righteous. And he says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Not only had they accused 
him of being a sinner, but they accused Christ of being a sinner. And the poor little blind guy is saying, now wait a minute. I can see. Something good has happened. God's given me my sight back. And we know that God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners, so quit calling the man who just healed me a sinner. He knew that lesson. Now, if God only hears the prayer of the righteous, what does that mean when we get to Acts chapter 10 and find out that when Cornelius prayed, his prayers were heard? He was a righteous man, and he didn't need the first pope, did he? And I say that foolishly. He didn't need Peter to make him righteous, did he? He needed Peter to tell him how to do some righteousness, like getting baptized. But he was already a righteous man, or God wouldn't have heard his prayers. Now, there's more verses to prove that point, but we'll leave them. But look at 1 John 3.22. 1 John 3.22. There's more verses describing righteousness. But I want you to see this one in 1 John 3.22. Here the Apostle John writes and says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Because, well, this is we, we want to know this, don't we? Because, here's how you get the things you ask for. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Is your life one of giving God pleasure? Or is your life one of giving yourself pleasure? You can't have both unless you're totally in the Spirit of God. And then giving God pleasure is the greatest source of pleasure for yourself. Do you keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight? Are you a person pleasing to God? And I'm not talking about Sunday mornings and how loud you sing. I'm talking how you live Monday through Saturday. Is your life one that pleases God? God must be taking delight in your life, is He? Well, if you don't have a life like that, don't worry about how to pray. You need to get your life straightened out. The Bible says in Psalm 84 and verse 11, No good thing will He withhold from them that walk and to walk uprightly is to be righteous. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Not talk uprightly. Not think uprightly. Not believe uprightly. But walk uprightly. Come back to Proverbs chapter 15. The book of Proverbs chapter 15. I want you to see what you do when you pray in a state of unrighteousness. When you're living ungodly and you pray, you are not helping your situation. Which is, you know, that's hard for us to imagine, but this is what the Word of God says. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. If you'll get a concordance and look up the word abomination, you'll find it used in places in Scripture when it's dealing with things like incest, bestiality, sodomy, and when you pray when you're wicked. The, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. Proverbs 15. Look at verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. And look at chapter 21, Proverbs 21, and verse 27. Let these verses 
put the terror of the Lord before you this morning. Verse 27 of chapter 21, the sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind? And do you know what that, the, the point I want to get from that verse is those that don't bring it with a wicked mind. Those that bring it with a good deceived mind. Do you know what it is? It is an abomination. When you come with a wicked mind, like you're trying to accomplish some social good by sacrificing in public, it's worse. But when you come with a deceived mind and you haven't confessed the sin in your life, you're adding abominations to your account. That is why I teach in this church, if you're not going to give it all you've got and live all, live all out for God, don't come. You're adding sins to your own account. I want the best for you. And the best is either living all out for God or living all out for the devil. Not coming in here and sacrificing with a wicked heart. The subject must be a righteous man. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3. One example and we'll move on. 1 Kings chapter 3. Was Solomon's prayer heard? Indeed. He prayed for wisdom. What did he get? Wisdom, riches, honor, and long life. His prayer was heard. But what do we know about Solomon himself before he prayed? We know this. 1 Kings 3, 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, talking in the... Walking. Notice how the Word of God is the most unified, the most unified writing that has ever appeared on the human scene. If you will study the King James Version, believing every single word, you will find agreement and force that is unbelievable by studying this book. I don't care where you go. You look at the word walk. And do you think I'm done with the word walk yet this morning? I'm not. That's why I'm emphasizing it. It's going to play an important part in you getting your prayers answered. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. It's those that do righteousness. We're talking about activity. 1 Kings 3.3, 3, And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. They didn't have a temple built yet, so they had a little problem. They were offering some incense in high places. But that's not the point. The Holy Spirit brings out this. He says, Solomon loved the Lord, and he walked in the statutes of David his father. Solomon was an obedient man. Point number two, prayer must be in the Holy Ghost. Jude chapter 20, we read that we should pray in the Holy Ghost. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, we ought to pray in the Spirit. What in the world does that mean? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We need to pray in the Spirit. Jude tells us that, and Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 6. First of all, we have to be obedient. Now we have to find ourselves in the Spirit. Ephesians 2.18, For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. How do you get to the Father? You know, you know what the word access means. You, you've seen the word access on maps that you've read. You have access to certain highways or you don't have access to certain highways. You either get there or you don't. You're allowed to be there or you're not. And we have access to God the Father by the Spirit. If the Spirit is not assisting your prayers, your prayers will not get there. 
because it is by the Spirit they get there. For through Him, that is Christ Jesus' work, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now look at Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, which is an important passage on prayer. Romans 8 and verse 26. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself, this, listen to the words, the personality of the third person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit Himself, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Humans couldn't utter. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Your greatest ally in prayer is not your wife. Your greatest ally in prayer is not the other man that I call on every Sunday evening to pray with you. Your greatest ally in prayer is not me. Your greatest ally in prayer is the Holy Spirit of God. And if you have the Holy Spirit praying for you in a language that you cannot utter, you're going to get somewhere because He provides access to the Father. And without His access, you don't get through to His holy dwelling place. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that moved upon the face of the waters. Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God that moved holy men to write this book. Praise for you. In those things that you don't know how to pray for, like Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, describe things which you know not, thank God the Holy Spirit does. Amen. He prays for those things that are exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. Because He prays according to the will of God. And God's mind is not limited by our feeble efforts at prayer requests. The Holy Spirit makes those requests for us. Well, how do you, how do you pray in the Spirit? Does that mean that we pray in Tahili? Or pray in Farsi, the language in Iran? Or we pray in vain babblings of the charismatics? How do we pray in the Spirit? You walk in the Spirit. That's how you are in the Spirit to pray. You walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. It all fits together dealing with the subject for proper prayer. You've got to be walking right. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, if you're walking in the Spirit, where will your prayers be uttered from? If you're walking, right, in the Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, your prayers are going to be in the Spirit because you will be in the Spirit. Now, do we need to go to seminary to learn that concept? In means in, doesn't it? If you're walking in the Spirit, your prayers will be in the Spirit. If I'm walking in this room, where will my prayers be? In this room. Galatians 5.16, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, how, what is walking in the Spirit? Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. 
And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, you've got sandwiched in between those two exhortations to walk in the Spirit, two categories of things. You've got a big bucket of things in verses 19 through 21. Those are things that are of the flesh. You ought not to walk in those things. You are to mortify those things. But then there are things in verses 22 and 23, nine things, that you are to walk in. The fruit of the Spirit. Walk in those things and don't walk in the things of the flesh and you are walking in the Spirit. And by so walking, the Spirit of God will not be grieved and quenched. If the Spirit of God is grieved and quenched, His groanings and utterings are not availing for you. You know the passages. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Quench not the Holy Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. The Spirit is like a flame in our lives. He appeared as a flame on the day of Pentecost, and He's like a fire in our lives when if we walk in the flesh like this, that flame gets lower and lower and lower instead of burning brightly with zeal and love for God, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Is it not joy and love? But if you're walking in those things, you're in the Spirit, so your prayers will be in the Spirit. And the Spirit, which is fully uninhibited, unchained and liberated in your life, will be praying with you with all the power that the Spirit of God has, and He has power. I mean, He raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and He raised you from the dead in the same way. Death and trespasses and sins, we read in Scripture. There's one th This is what I'm afraid of. Isaiah 63 and verse 10. This is what you get for not walking in the Spirit. See, it all fits together. The first qualification is being righteous. The next qualification is praying in the Spirit, which if you're being righteous, you'll be in the Spirit. Here's what can happen, though, if you don't walk in the Spirit when you pray. Isaiah 63 and verse 10. But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. That is to quench or to grieve. When you vex someone, what happens? They're grieved with you. They're upset at you. They're disappointed in you. But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Therefore He... Who is that He? The Holy Spirit. Therefore the Holy Spirit was turned to be their enemy and He fought against them. Do you get the ramifications of that in conjunction with the New Testament? If you pray out of the Spirit, instead of the Spirit praying for you with groanings which cannot be uttered, the Spirit just doesn't sit by idly. The Spirit turns to be your enemy. You're not going to get what you're praying for. He will turn to be your enemy and fight against you. Look at Psalm 145. We're going to move to point three. Qualification three of the subject of prayer. Psalm 145. Oh, I pray that you'll walk in the Spirit. If you don't have that, all of this preaching is in vain. Psalm 145 and verse 18. We move to qualification three of the subject of prayer. The Lord is nigh unto all that call upon Him. Well, that's comforting, isn't it? to all that call upon Him in truth. Psalm 145 and verse 18. You know, Jesus Christ said that the Father seeks those that worship Him in spirit and in truth. We've seen praying in the Spirit, and now we notice here that if you call upon God and you don't call upon Him in truth, 
you're not going to be heard. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. To all them that call upon him in truth. If you don't call in truth, the Lord is not nigh unto you. You've got to call in truth. Look at Proverbs 28 and verse 7. Proverbs 28 and 7. I want verse 9. Proverbs 28 and verse 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Proverbs 28, 9. Strong language. If you hear something from this pulpit and you don't like it and you can't prove it wrong and you don't come to me but you turn away from it, well, I'm not going to accept that. I don't like him getting into that area of my life. I'm not going to sacrifice that. You turn your ears away from the hearing of the law, your prayer becomes abomination. Prayer must be done in the truth, just like worship must be in the truth in order for it to be accepted. And John 15, 7, Jesus said, if ye keep my words, then you'll pray and you'll receive what you ask of me. But we've got to keep his words, what Jesus Christ said, what the, word, what the law says, what the word of God says in the truth. We've got to be righteous. We've got to pray in the spirit. We've got to pray in the truth. Let's move on to point number four. You must have your sins confessed. Look at Psalm 66 and verse 18. And I think anyone from the age of five years old on up can understand this concept. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Simple. Right to the point. Plain. If you have a sin in your life, I don't care how small that sin is, if you regard it, you know that it's there, but you don't repent of it. And you know, just saying, God, forgive me, and then ask a request isn't enough. Repentance involves turning away from that thing and blowing it out of your life. If you have something in your life that you are hiding and covering, you will not prosper, the Word of God says. You have to get rid of it. Confess your sins. Look at Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Boy, when you study prayer, you sure do keep the Bible study method of Isaiah 28. And what method is that? Here a little, and there a little. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Now verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. There's two witnesses on that point. It's not, you know, men get the idea. In Isaiah's day, I'm sure men had the idea, well, God's just not operating like he did with David, like he did with Solomon, like he did with Abraham, like he did with Moses. The Lord's hand is being shortened. He's not dealing like he used to. God's saying, no way. My hand is not shortened that it cannot save. My ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. Your iniquities are the problem. Your sins, I will not hear. It's not that I cannot, I will not. And it's your fault. Confess your sins. You better search your life and beg God to search it with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We've got to have our sins confessed in order for our prayers to be effectual. 
and don't think you've got forever to get that job done. On every point, basically, there's usually something in the Word of God to scare us, to frighten us, to warn us. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now I persuaded you, I hope, on the Spirit of God, He'll turn to be your enemy. You'll be about... Your effectuality rating will be negative. Do <laughs> you understand that? If the Holy Spirit turns to be your enemy, look at Isaiah 55. Come back just a few chapters to Isaiah 55 and verse 6. These words are sobering. Verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 6 has no meaning unless there is a time when you will not be able to reach God. You know what that time is? It's called in Revelation chapter 3, the space of time. Jesus Christ said to the church at Thyatira, I've given them a space of time to repent. And if they have not, I'll cast them into a bed and all that commit adultery with them and destroy them. Proverbs 29 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, he being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Don't think you've got forever to confess your sins. Remember, that's one of the delusions I've preached to this congregation. I've got plenty of time. Isn't that how the natural man thinks? You know, while you're sitting there watching something on television that's tempting you to lust, you say, well, I've got time to correct this later. Listen, that, 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 it may be that television program where God turns you over to love that stuff and you no longer feel conviction about it. I'm just using television as one example. We've got a hundred areas in our lives where we're all tempted. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. You know what that means? You confess your sins right now if you've got some. Today, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, God will let sin take control of you and you can live the last 20 years of your life like Solomon did, worshiping Molech with his thousand wives, building altars to Molech. Isn't that an intelligent human being? He'll leave you there. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Let's move. Point number five on the subject of prayer. What needs to describe our lives, our character, in order for our prayers to be heard? Let's, this is practical now. Our relationships with others. If you don't have certain characteristics in the way, way you deal with other people, God isn't going to deal favorably with you. Look at 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. Here's a relationship you have to look at every day. Don't you, men? 1 Peter 3, 7. Listen to the practicality of God's Word. This is a good... This book is incredible. You wonder, what about prayer? Well, the Bible has a lot to say on it. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands... Dwell with them, that is, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, is that plain? Your prayer life can be hindered. 
Now, if your prayers are hindered, that means instead of reaching His holy dwelling place, it will be absorbed in the acoustical tile of the ceiling. It'll be hindered. It won't get there. You, the effectual fervent, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A hindered prayer is not an effectual prayer. And do you know what uh, the condition is here? Knowing your wife, she's not your equal. Giving her honor as the weaker vessel and considering her an equal heir of the grace of life. If you don't do those three things and do them well, your prayers will be hindered. Thus saith the Lord. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 7, beginning at verse 5, Jesus begins teaching about prayer. He gives us the Lord's Prayer in verse 9, but as soon as he says amen in verse 13, look at what he says in verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When men do something to offend you, if you can't forgive them, you are not going to be forgiven when you pray. And if you're not forgiven when you pray, how effectual will your prayer be? The Lord will not hear. You know what it boils down to? How gracious are you in dealing with other men? Do you forgive them their trespasses? Did you know that's the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus Christ gave a commentary on? When we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See, he wants, he gives a two-verse commentary on that phrase in the Lord's Prayer. And he said, four, here's the explanation. Because if you don't forgive men their trespasses, I'm not going to forgive you. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 2. Chapter 7 and verse 2, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Let me try to encourage you people to some mercy in dealing with one another. If you judge, if you are a critical person in picking on the faults in other men's lives, and we're all going to have faults, if you are judgmental and always looking for the faults, guess what God's going to do when He looks at your life? For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. You say, well, God doesn't overlook anything. Oh, yes, He does. You should look at the life of the man. How about Solomon? We've already read it. It said that, God, that Solomon loved the Lord, and he walked in the statutes of David his father, but he was still burning incense in the high places. Did God overlook it? He came to him in a prayer. Did he bring it up? Get the message. Did he bring it up? No. Came to him in a prayer and said, Ask what you will, and he gave it to him. We can read about Asa, that Asa had a revival in the land of Israel, and he tore down the false idols, and he got the Sodomites out of the land. He was Jehoshaphat's father, but he still worshipped in the high places. But the Bible says his heart was still perfect with the Lord. God still considered him perfect even though he wasn't perfect. Wait a minute. How can God do that? By mercy, overlooking little things that Asa forgot about. But I'm telling you, you better have a heart in the right place to get that kind of a uh, mercy. That doesn't mean we can do anything we want to doctrinally or practically in the Greenville Church and have God overlook it. We have to do all that we know. Asa just didn't see it. With what judgment you judge, 
God will judge you and with what measure ye meet. What is your standard of measurement of everyone else? I could preach for 15 minutes on that point. Are you measuring everyone else else's behavior by your measurement? Our measurement sticks and every area of our lives are all different. Child behavior, our houses, our schedules, our discipline, our work hours, They're, it's all different. How do you measure? Are you measuring everyone by your tough yardstick? If you do that, God will have an appropriate yardstick for you. That's what it says. How do you deal with others? Because how you deal with others is the way God is going to deal with you. You know, look at James, James 2.13. James 2.13, For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Men are always going to offend you. I'm guaranteeing it. If you'll live around them long enough, something's going to happen every week. Someone's going to do something that'll bother you. But if you don't show mercy, verse 13 of James 2, He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. If you're not merciful, God's going to be that picky with you. But mercy rejoices against judgment. You want to get a thrill out of overlooking someone's offense against you. Do you know why? Because God is going to have an, a corresponding thrill in overlooking your offense against Him. And if you think you're going to live without offending Him, you haven't learned Jesus Christ aright. But you can make up for your offenses in certain areas. Sins of ignorance by being merciful to others who don't measure up to your great big measuring stick. Mercy rejoices against judgment. A cross-reference for that verse, and it's already in my Bible, you can put it in yours, is Proverbs 19.11. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. We ought to consider it a great opportunity when someone transgresses against us to overlook it. Do you know why? Because when we pray, we want God to overlook all the transgressions we have and be merciful toward us. If we don't forgive when men come and beg forgiveness from us and do it quickly, do you know what? You're going to be under conviction for sin and you're going to get down beside your bed on your knees or in your closet and you're going to beg God for forgiveness and you're going to come out of that closet 15 minutes later, and you are going to feel as guilty for those sins as you did when you went in. And you're going to wonder, why isn't God keeping His promise to forgive me? He's keeping His promise. His promise of Matthew 6, 14 and 15, and Matthew 7, 2, and James 2, 13. 1 Timothy 2, 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. We'll deal with doubting later without wrath. If you're mad at your brother, when you go to the Lord in prayer, you're mad at your wife, you're mad at your children, you're mad at your brother, you're mad at your pastor, you're not praying effectually the way God has prescribed. You are to pray without wrath. Last Sunday, under the promises of prayer, I showed you from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus Christ said, Your Father which is in heaven is like a father. If a son came to one of us and said, Give me a piece of bread, we wouldn't give him a stone. 
If he came and asked for a fish, we wouldn't give him a serpent. And Jesus said, you're evil fathers. You're, you're, you, you as fathers aren't even to be compared to your heavenly father. How much more will he give the things to those that ask him? But the analogy of a father is important. For as you judge and as you measure is the way you're going to be judged and measured. And God has already given me the example of the fathers as an example of his measuring stick or an appropriate analogy. I read this about our God. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. We have, and I'm talking to the men, we have wives and children mentioned in the New Testament. Notice that this verse says, for he knoweth our frame. Do you know your wife's frame? And you take that into consideration in everything you require from her. Do you know the frame of your three-year-old? Do you know the frame of a six-year-old? Do you know the frame of a ten-year-old? Do you remember it? Do you pity them for that frame and that difference? Ooh. Practical, isn't it? To the degree that you judge and don't pity and show mercy to your children and to your wives is the degree that God will withhold mercy and favor and pity toward you. And I must close for this morning. Brethren, there is more on the subject of prayer than you will believe. This morning we've tried, we've reviewed a few things that we introduced last Sunday. We've looked at the fact that prayer must be made by a righteous man, them that walk uprightly. Prayer must be made in the Spirit. Those that walk in the Spirit will have their prayers heard. Prayer must be in the truth. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call on Him in truth. He that turneth his ear away from the hearing of the law, his prayer shall be abomination. Prayer must be made when our sins are confessed. Confession of sins has got to be a prerequisite to effectual prayer. And our relationships to others judge, determine how God's going to deal with our prayer. I want you to be intimidated with that prospect, but also look at it as a great opportunity. You want God to be full of pity and compassion and mercy toward you? Then learn to be pitiful, compassionate, and merciful toward your wives and children and toward your brethren. May God bless the preaching of his word.